With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News today's Talk, TNT. Welcome back to the second hour of Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. And if you just missed it, the interview with Dave Hayes was an absolute ripper, the praying medic. Uh, many people would be aware of his work over a long period of time. And it's quite incredible, isn't it, when you consider that everything that's going on in the world, the idea that one is finding their faith or finding their faith again, it's a very, very big deal and it's a very personal situation. But the amount of people that I'm talking to in my life uh, that are, are telling me what they're discovering, and it's the idea of realising that it's a lot bigger than just a news cycle and the facts of the case. But there seems to be a world where we have a split in the information, a split in facts, and whichever side of the fence that you're on, you wonder what is really going on. And I'm just going to give you a perfect example is the case at the moment that went through the Australian courts this week where Dr. Fidge uh, was, was taking this particular case against Pfizer and Moderna, and uh, the idea was that he discovered the use of GMOs that are illegal unless they're notified, which they weren't. And the court simply rules that it's got no standing, that is not exactly the person that has any grievance, despite the fact that he took said vaccines, administered them to patients, administered them to his family, but was told that they don't count. So if that's the case, one wonders who would ever get standing when taking on a vaccine company for misdeeds or for fraud, as Dave referred to in the last hour. And I find that very, very difficult to cope with. And that is why when you get down on yourself and down on your luck, it's nice to be able to have someone to lean on. Now, my next guest happens to be Father Tony Percy. Now, Tony's not here for a discussion necessarily about faith, but about a wonderful little book that he did uh, put together a little while ago about our country, Australia. And you do wonder where Australia is headed into the next century. What kind of country do we expect? Are we going to have mass population growth? Are we going to have nuclear power, for example? Or are we in a very, very different world where the climate greenies take over? We're no longer allowed to eat meat, etc. The bugs is what you're going to take for protein and all of that stuff. But this discussion may be a little bit more going back into our history, going back to understand how we got here, how good really is the Constitution of Australia, and should we be able to build upon that as we look forward to going to the 21st century. Let me tell you a bit more about Father Tony. He was appointed as the Vicar General of the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn, November of 2014. He was ordained back in 1990, and Father Tony has served uh, in a number of locations, including Young, Queenbeyan and Goulburn. In 2009, he was appointed Rector of the Seminary of the Good Shepherd in Homebush in New South Wales, where he remained for six years. The Vicar General represents the Archbishop in overseeing the work of the various departments Departments and church offices within the Archdiocese and Curia. Tony wrote the book, Australia, What Went Wrong, What Went Right, and that is what we're going to discuss today. Tony Percy, welcome to Weekends. Thanks very much, Jason. Very kind of you to have me. Actually, the book is called Australia, What Went Right, What Went Wrong. So a lot, a lot has gone right. <laughs> a few things have gone wrong, but most of it's gone right. And uh, that's the book. It's a little monograph and it's based on David Kemp's monumental five-volume work, which he wrote. The first volume is called The Land of Dreams. When I read it, I thought this has got to be distilled in a, a better way. So I had a three-month sabbatical, Jason. Everyone needs things like that, including yourself probably, and all your good workers there at TNT. And uh, so during that time in Brisbane, I wrote the book uh, to try and help a lot of Australians, particularly young people, see just how good the country is and why it is so good and why we should certainly have hope in going forward. I, I don't know what it is, but whenever I um, refer to your book, and obviously it has a complicated title for me to understand, I always put the wrong before the bright. I don't know what I'm doing with, with that particular situation. I've had the book with me all week. I carry it with me to make sure that um, that uh, I, I want to keep referring to it. I, I have read the book, and uh, I, I just find it funny that I keep doing that. It, it must be some form of um, uh, Freudian slip or something that uh, is making me say it, but you're dead right. When you go back and you read the book and you understand and you explain 
explain the constitution and the constitutional convention that got us there. And even when we go back and you talk about the governors uh, of the colonies of New South Wales, it's a very, very different take to what we're seeing and being told in the media, particularly as we approach Australia Day in this country, January 26, it just seems to be a day of um, that that is spoilt by the fact that we can't seem to consolidate together and get on with the fact that we got to 1901, we got to federation, we build this country, we we, we continue to do so, but we can't seem to get past uh, back 1788, uh, Australia Day, uh, Captain Philip. It's 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 an odd scenario. How did you feel? Do do you seem to feel over a period of time perhaps that a Australia Day has changed it and, and taken a very, very negative or sour turn? Well, personally, no. I mean, I think Australia is a, a fantastic country because it's both free and fair to a large extent. And we've had a lot of natural mechanisms that have actually helped produce a lot of wealth and then to distribute the wealth. So, I mean, Kent makes this point in his very first volume that the founders of Australia avoided aristocratic conservatism. That is a sort of an older model where just a few people had the money and the power in their hands. And we wanted to avoid utopian socialism because we know the fruit of socialism is poverty. And after the Berlin Wall collapsed in 1989, after what, uh, 72 years of communism, socialism, particularly in Europe, there was absolute abject poverty. So they're unable to produce any wealth. So you can't distribute wealth if you don't have it. So they wanted a middle way. And the middle way was to say, let's have a a free and fair society. And that was largely achieved and and has been achieved. I mean, it's under threat now for a number of reasons, but up to this point, we're still doing pretty well. So I don't have any problems about celebrating Australia Day. I mean, they talk about you know, invasion day. But but to be honest, Jason, I mean, if you're going to use that sort of language, then you have to apply it to everything. So you could say, for instance, that the Aboriginals invaded Australia 65,000 years ago. Now, that's a pejorative use of the term, but it's equally pejorative to say that the British invaded the place because we know from history that the, the governors were extremely reverent and open to the Aboriginal people. What happened on the frontiers in the middle part of the 19th century, that's another issue. But in no way did they ever sanction that sort of behaviour against Aboriginals. So I think to use the word invasion is incredibly pejorative and not helpful for the country. Yeah, I'm glad that you're able to... um make that clear definition. And I, I think it's very important for us to be able to sort of sit back and and take it all in and then compare it to the work again. And we're obviously referring to the book today. Uh, I, I want to make the, um, I'm probably just going to quote from it actually, but you, you compare aristocratic conservatism or utopian socialism, which you just explained. And, and then you write, how can poverty be alleviated without industriousness and ingenuity, whereby initiative is honoured and rewarded? So many of us uh, perhaps not necessarily understanding utopia just seems like it's just perfect society. But utopian socialism, when you put the term together like that, that's kind of where we're seeing this 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 globalist world at the moment. They're trying to make um, more and more of us dependent on government, uh, the introduction perhaps, and the, the talk, even Elon Musk this week's talking about a, a universal basic income because artificial intelligence is headed in a way that it will make more and more people redundant from their job roles. This this is uh, perhaps you know the utopian nightmare coming to fruition. So, not that the, um, the 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 founders of early Australia decided or could even see into the future and wonder about you know computers and artificial intelligence, but it seems that they certainly dodged a bullet when they said no, no, we reject utopian socialism completely and go down this middle road, as you said, of a free and fair society. So it may have been a case of uh, dumb luck, but it, it certainly seems that when you provide opportunity, incentive, ingenuity, you reward um, uh, entrepreneurialship, industriousness, you can't really go wrong, can you? No. I mean, I'm, I, the point is, of course, that utopia, it's a word that means no place. So it doesn't exist. So it's a play on the term itself. So in socialism, you know, it has this idea, the Marxism that was pushed, pushed forward by Marx and Engels and all these characters. I mean, the, the idea is that that everything's wrong in the background, that we've, we've got to sort of have this uprising to overturn what is an existing 
unjust society. But that's the presupposition. But that's not the case in Australia. So that, you know, pushing sort of Marxism in Australia, the Marxist view, it won't be actually all that effective because the country's not only free, but it's also very fair. And I think what the uh, what the what what Australia has done down through the ages is to ensure that we have these natural mechanisms that actually help produce wealth, but also then distribute it. So take, for instance, the just wage, a very important idea. Take, for instance, superannuation. Take our education system. So you've got both a, a very good mixture of public and private education. The same applies to our universal cover with with uh, healthcare. So you've got a public system and also a private system. These, are, these things are very important, which are not taken for granted in most countries in the world. Furthermore, the uh, the protection and promotion of property rights. So if you go to South America today, you will still find that they don't have proper property rights. So the reason you have large pockets of poverty in these countries is because they don't have a natural mechanism called property rights which helps people to um, own things and therefore distribute them among their loved ones in the common uh, community. So these things are really important. And what we've done over the, the, the sort of period of time of Australian history is to set up a constitution that really governs this type of behaviour and ensures it. And I think that's been the genius of Australia, to be quite, to be quite honest. This is the point, isn't it, that um, you can look at contemporary, you can take a snapshot of history and you can criticise uh, and, and look at it and say, well, this is Australia today. The idea of, you know, perhaps destroying statues that on Australia Day, Captain Cook statues are, are ripped apart, ripped out of the ground, graffitied, etc. And look at it at just that particular moment. And, and it seems to be such a, uh, um, obviously a reaction uh, in, in that particular situation. But when the only way it seems that we can appreciate what Australia really is and, and, and what it's becoming is when we look back this particular way. This is this is why your book is, is so important, even if people want to consider that it's it's derived from David Kemp's five volumes. Quite extraordinary. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you discovered David's work and uh, and what prompted you, therefore, to say, you know what, I think I need to distill this in, into, into the book that you ended up writing? Mm. Well, at some stage I spoke to Kemp about it and I said, you know, where, where did you get your great interest in this topic of a free and fair society? He said, oh, since birth. He'd been pursuing it since birth. And I mean, it's a very heavy volume. It's it's really systematic. And the tertiary sectors and the secondary sectors and primary sectors all need to have a look at it and try and distill it into forms that's going to be accepted. So that's what I tried to do. But, I mean, Kemp's work is is very detailed and very systematic. I, I added a chapter to it myself because I thought that, you know, the question is where did, where did this whole idea of a free and fair society come from? And, of course, it comes from all these centuries before, particularly out of the Middle Ages, particularly with things like universities and, and some of the religious orders and some of the defence of freedom and, and the sort of seeds that were sown in the, the oldest society and the whole idea of the, rep, you know, the Magna Carta in 1215, representative government of sorts. So a lot of these things were, were sown in ancient society but came to fruition as the Industrial Revolution began. And so Kemp picks up on this and tries to drive home the argument as to what was happening in Europe and how the, this, particularly the Scottish political philosophers thought, well, what, do we, what, what, what sort of a society do we want here? And then they sort of took this into Australia with the instructions to, to Philip and then all the successive governors who governed Australia brilliantly because they were not only highly intelligent men, but they were very practical and so to pull something like this off, this practical experiment in a, a democracy that's going to be free and fair, you need people that are really versed in what are the basic principles, but but also the, the practicality of how to do it. So there's some great figures there. Uh, you mentioned Cook there before. Of course, the, this whole debasing of the statue of Cook, it, it's mindless behaviour. It's mm. sort of like because, I mean, Cook was a, he was an investigator. He he chartered the East Coast. He didn't come here with the first fleet. So as to why they're knocking over a guy that chartered the East Coast of Australia and a large part of Tasmania, why they're knocking over his statue, I mean, it just shows that they simply do not know history. And this brings us to another problem that we've got in the Australian curriculum, that our young ones are not being taught history as it is. And there's, there's some great bright spots in Australian history. There's some dark spots too. They should be exposed to all of them. 
but unfortunately they are not being exposed to them. So people saying, yay, yay, let's knock over the statue of, of James Cook, but why? He was the guy that, uh, as I say, discovered the East Coast. He wasn't the guy that set up the first settlement. Incredible. Absolutely. You scratch your head and you wonder, and then you realise that uh, that the history, you know, written by the victor, so to speak. But uh, this is not the case here. It's almost like we're allowing in this country, and it seems to be happening around the world, that uh, history can be written by whoever's got the loudest voice and the most destructivity behind I, them. Yeah, I think that's a very, very interesting point that you make, because in the study that I made of Kemp's work, and I had my first degree was in uh, finance. I did an honours degree in finance. So I had an interest in money and economics and quite enjoyed it. My father had that sort of background. And my father was also involved in political life through councils and things. And dad was an old Labor guy. And then he became a Liberal guy when he got into business. And he sort of um, was very instructive with with all of this uh, in my life. And so when I came to to study Kemp, I thought this is, this is quite important, quite important uh, for sure. Yeah. And the only way that I think that uh, that you realise the importance of the history of our country is that somehow it has to be presented to you in a way, and then you realise, hang on a second, maybe I don't have the full facts of the situation, maybe I need to learn a bit more. And I think that's why, Tony, that your book is uh, something that's very, very accessible to people. It's not a long read, it's not expensive to purchase. We will, after the break, what we'll do is we'll put the picture up of the screen so people can recognise it, unless you've got a copy of it there in front of you, we might be able to, to show it. But if not, we will show that after the break. In the meantime, did you know that there are many ways that you can watch or listen now to TNT Radio? You can stream us on direct from our website on your desktop, tablet or mobile device or download our app from the App Store. We even stream live on X, YouTube, Rumble and Odyssey. We've got you covered on today's News Talk TNT. TNT's Steve Malsberg. January to November, he visited the home 35 times. Now, I mean, this is this is insane, of course. Uh, they say the relationship started in 2022. So what was he doing visiting our home 35 times or that proximity where her home was? The, the, the records apparently reportedly show that he would get there late and stay late, leave her early in the morning, like four in the morning at some sometimes, uh, call her when he gets home, that kind of thing, which indicates to the average person a relationship. Steve Malsberg on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's News Talk TNT Radio should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Father Tony Percy. He's the author of the book, Australia, What Went Right. What went wrong? I keep getting that one wrong, Tony, but I think that's getting people to understand that it's a book that they must understand. Why does Jason keep talking about this book? Because it is such an important book, um, Tony. What I want to talk to you about now is this um, idea that we were living, there it is on the screen right now, you can see it, and you can pick it up, Connor Court Publishing. In fact, I think it's about $22. It's a bargain, and it's a great way to know your history and to be able to defend Australia Day uh, next year when someone says to you that uh, they think they know what's really going on, not the case, as it were. Now, um, Tony, I want to talk to you about slavery uh, as it pertains to Australia and uh, the governors at the day and the work that you were doing, because it, you could talk about it as a, as a as a kind of a black spot. There were certainly exclusions, as you talk about, but humanitarianism uh, and a rejection of slavery. I was hoping you could explain that in Australian terms. Yeah, well, the and William Wilberforce was a big uh, mover of this overseas, of course. And then when Philip came out, it was very clear that his instructions were that in this new colony, there would be no slavery. And so I think this is a, a very, very important point, unlike the British, like the Americans that have had that experience. We we, we started, in a sense, fresh. So the, the idea was we want a, absolutely a free society, but it's got to be a humanitarian society. So 
coming out of the Industrial Revolution and all of the scientific advancements that were happening, which were of great benefit, the question then became for a lot of philosophers and political philosophers, can we apply this new science to the very structure of society? So can we create a society that actually is going to be free and humanitarian, is going to actually have at the centre of it the dignity and the freedom of the human person? So that was the question posed. And the question then was, well, can, can actually that be achieved? And so, as I mentioned before, before we had the break, that, that those governors that came out, starting with Philip, that they were highly significant because they were very clear about the direction that, that, that they wanted to go. Their instructions were quite clear and they were able to actually pull it off. So one of the things that you see happening, which actually drives home this idea that you won't have slavery, is that the, the, the convicts, as soon as they were liberated, for largely because of larceny, I mean, we all know the, the history there of some of those very minor petty crimes they were sent out here for, that once they were liberated out of that, they were given full rights as citizens. And so you look, within the first, say, 20 years of Australian society, you get an art market developing in Australia um, with people who have previously been uh, convicts. So you see that the whole idea of not having slavery carried its way through uh, the governors to actually release people from these minor sentences to participate fully in Australian society. It's a wonderful piece of history and people should not forget that. And as I mentioned before the break as well, all the governors, there's not, without one, any exception, all of them were extremely sensitive to Aboriginal people and the way they should be treated. Now, they couldn't pull it off because on the frontiers there were difficulties with, um, you know, tensions between uh, white people and the Aboriginal people. But nevertheless, you, you've got to see the, the, the truth of the fact that historically the, the governors and the governments were very clear about the way Aboriginal people should have been treated. So I think that whole the, the whole beginnings of saying no slavery was foundational for a free and fair society. And it's a great achievement, incredible achievement. I'd like to talk a little bit about the story of Henry Parks, the three-time Premier of New South Wales. He was married three times. He had something like 15 children, uh, quite an extraordinary character. What drew your attention to him? Oh, well, he's, he's known as the father of federation, so he died before the country was federated. He's um, a very interesting figure. So I think with his first wife, he had 12 children. Then I think he had five with another woman. I think three of those were born before his first wife died. And then his third marriage, I think he married a woman who was 54 or 55 years younger than him. So he was sort of poetic parts. He was into printing presses, very much into the free press and things, but he was obviously involved in, in other natural uh, <laughs> acts as well. Just a fabulous figure, I think, Parks. Um, great contributor. And uh, along with Wentworth and a few other figures says, and Parks is, uh, is uh, to be admired, I think, for his drive in really helping Australia become the country that it is today, no question. Mm. It's, the, again, the detail and, 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 of course, the history lessons that may or may not be taught in schools anymore. It seems that uh, we seeing our children being indoctrinated one way or another and not getting the level of detail uh, in, in their studies that way. And, of course, another thing that would come up would be that Australia at the time, uh, talking about wealth per capita against others in the world, Australia was a very wealthy nation per capita, wasn't it? Well, the, the, the greatest. I mean, Parks assembled all those figures and uh, he, he assembled them and, and made the claim that Australia was the wealthiest, but also the wealthiest, as you just pointed out, per capita. So the wealth was distributed very fairly. Um, just a, a point that comes to mind as you were talking then is those, and I think you mentioned this before, Jason, about the, the constitutional conventions. So yes. they were probably about a decade apart. Now, Barton thought, Barton, Australia's first Prime Minister, who spoke with the Pope in Latin, believe that or not, Barton, he said, well, the second one was better and really led to a, a much a, a more liberal and free uh, society. But just get that, they were very forceful personalities, a lot of those early people, but they, were, they, they knew how to work together in conventions. They knew how to, to work within differences of opinion. 
that that I think is a great point for Australia today. People have different opinions, and it's no good going out name calling. You've got to stop, listen, respect, and then you'll actually forge through the process of patience and respect and freedom. Uh, you will forge what's going to be better for most people. And uh, I think I was going to make this point before the break and didn't, but the, the genius of Australia, it seems to me, is that we've been able to, because of this interaction of people, we've been able to take self-interest and make it public interest. So we're able to say, well, okay, your interest is this, Jason, my interest is this, and we've got a whole lot of people with interest. Well, what actually can we do that will be of benefit to Jason, me, and the other people. It won't mean that I get exactly what I want, but it'll mean that all of us won't be uniquely dissatisfied with the outcome. We will be respected so that public interest will satisfy our own self-interest in varying degrees. That, I think, is very important because we're living at a time now when we're getting a lot of minority groups that are, are sort of powerful and noisy. They're, they've got ears to the government. The government's sort of listening to them. They're able to get hold of significant amounts of money for their rent seeking and so therefore we're losing a sense of public interest and I think the genius of those first 100 years and then as it gave fruit to the constitution was precisely that, that we are going to pursue public interest not self-interested groups. Mm. Oh goodness me, it's, it's amazing. I can't believe, Tony, in a way that um, it's almost like you've lucked out uh, in this particular uh examination in the book that you're able to bring so many things that make us Australia uh, and and revise them. It, it, it's such, such an important piece of writing. And of course, it's derived, as you said, from David Kemp at five volumes into, uh, into one book makes a whole lot of sense. I might get you in a moment to hold the book up again so that people can get a hold and take note of it when we cut back to you. Um, there, there it is on screen. One more time, please, Tony. Um, there you go. That's what you're looking for. Australia, what went right, what went wrong by, it'll say Anthony Percy there on the cover. Uh, and it is a must read for people who want to understand Australia and how we got to be in this position where we believe that we are the luckiest country on earth. Now, moving on with that, um, I, I want to talk to you specifically about section 116 of the Constitution freedom of religion and how that applied then and how you think it's being applied today. Yeah, look, I think uh, there's a nice little section in the book. I learned a lot by doing this, I must say. So the section 116, it was a guy from South Australia who had convinced all the uh, founders to say, look, we need an acknowledgement of God in the preamble of the Constitution that is relying on, on God. We try to make this nation of Australia. So that guy's the name, his name was uh, Patrick McMahon Glynn. Now, there's an institute named after him, an ethics institute in Australian Catholic University. Deacon, who was Prime Minister three times in Australia's history, thought that he was the smartest guy in the room every time. He was a, an Irish guy, very, very clever guy, prodigious memory. And he then convinced them about having God being acknowledged in the preamble of the Constitution and then 106, uh, Section 116. What I think is important for your listeners and viewers to note is that most of the founders of Australia were not very religious at all, in fact. Uh, if they were religious, they might have been sort of deists. Some of them might, might have been Christians, but not very many were really strong believers. But uh, Patrick McMahon Glynn was able to convince them that the right to religious liberty is the second most important right in a democracy. The most important right is the right to life, defending the fact that we shouldn't be violent towards anybody. And secondly, that once you've defended the right to life, then the second most important foundational human right is the right to try and discover what is the meaning of life which can be different for a whole lot of different people. So I'm a Catholic priest, so my right to be a believing Christian, say so your right to be a Buddhist, your right to be Jewish, your right to be an atheist, whatever faith it is, provided, of course, we all have mutual respect for each other in the search for the meaning of life and in our adherence to what we think is, in fact, the meaning of life in and through our community life. So... That's very important, I think. The founders were not very religious, but they could see that this particular right, that is the right of religious liberty to understand the meaning of life, was so foundational to a free and fair society. So 
Section 116, to get to your question, says there will be no official religion, there will be no compulsion in religion, there'll be no restriction on religion, and there will be no religious discrimination. Well, I mean, you could not put that better. You could not say that in, in any more constructive way if you want a free and fair society where people who are of belief and people of no belief uh, can live together in a coherent society. Very important. Now, it seems to me this is so important going forward in the 21st century when people are saying, oh, well, you know, if you're Jewish or if you're Islamic or if you're Catholic or if you're Christian, then you can't actually say to people, we want to conduct our schools or our hospitals like this. Well, who says you can't? The Australian Constitution says, yes, you do. You can defend the right for, to say that there's no official religion, there's no compulsion in religion, there's no restriction on religion, there's no religious discrimination. So when you're getting these groups saying, oh, no, you can't as a Catholic say we want to employ somebody who's going to uphold our values, that's that's a form of discrimination. It's, it clearly is not according to the Australian Constitution. So I think the particular right, 116, it may not have been used a lot and may have been interpreted so far by the High Court in a restrictive manner. I think it's going to come into its own realm now in this 21st century precisely because there are great challenges in this area. Yeah, indeed. Look, I think there'd have to be a lot of Australians who get uh, quite uh, annoyed around Christmas time when there seems to be sort of a push at the local shops, for example, that uh, the Christmas decorations aren't what they used to be, that Christmas music is deemed offensive or some nonsense like that. And then it comes to um, Ramadan and all of a sudden the supermarkets are promoting it. Uh, Diwali Day, you see now that that's a big deal. And you're looking around and wondering... What's the balance in all of this? What's the public interest, if we circle back to the comments earlier? How do you read that in terms of um, uh, perhaps should we be just celebrating everything and, and, and playing it that way in the public interest? Or is this, again, a, a private matter for big supermarket chains to say, okay, well, we're just going to do it our own way and, and, and that's the way it's got to be? Well, again, it's back to the sort of historical. I mean, it's so ahistorical, this, because Christianity has continued enormously to the public good uh, in so many areas. There have been mistakes made, obviously, but the majority position is that the basic thrust of the interplay between the Christian public society has been incredibly positive. I mean, for instance, if you took a work by Rodney Stark, a sociologist, who said, well, why is it that Christianity rose so quickly in the early centuries? And one of the reasons, he says, is because Christians really had a great love for, for poor people and for ill health. They really got to help people who were sick. And so, therefore, when the ancient pandemics went through society, as a proportion of the population, Christians rose dramatically precisely because they were so practical in their care for the sick and the poor. And this, of course, has given away to modern uh, means of, of health care. There's no, there's no doubt about this. I mean, take education, Jason. So... The universities began in the 11th century, 11th and 12th century. They were inspired by the church because the, the popes wanted to reform the clergy who had become corrupted. And one of the best ways to do that is to give them a proper education. And so all those great universities were Christian in origin. And sooner rather than later, they took on their own forms of government. They had their own forms of funding, etc. They'd made enormous contributions to the modern societies and universities that we now have. So I think it's naivety to say that we shouldn't have as part of our heritage, our Christian heritage, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas because this has done an enormous amount of good to society. Um, if you just take art, you take music, the contribution by Christian believers has been enormous, just enormous. It's, un it's undeniable. So perhaps the problem is that people don't know their history and therefore are not sensitive enough to actually what's gone before them. So I think uh, we should stand up and fight. Now's the time to stand up and, and fight cleanly, of course, but to be really quite clear about what has been the heritage that we've, we've inherited here from a whole uh, centuries of believing people. 
And the point, therefore, is to know your history. This is what seems to be missing. You can't get uh, any form of history told to you in the news. All you get shown is a statue being ripped out on a particular day. It makes me wonder what's coming up on Anzac Day, April 25th, to see what kind of protest will go against that. It, it bugs me when you walk through the War Memorial, realising that the years going through COVID, that each soldier that died there uh, represented fighting for our freedom, certainly not for our safety, uh, a very, very different issue altogether and you wonder how it is that we get so confused but of course this is the great lesson of what's going on now tony after the uh we're going to take another break in a moment but after the break we're going to look at some of the things that went wrong with australia we might mention the white australia policy and we'll connect that uh, to how that sort of existed for so long as one example also the treatment not only of the indigenous but the chinese but then we're going to switch and look forward and look to see what might be coming as we look forward to the rest of the 21st Century. On that note, let's take that break now. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. To learn more, visit nature.org today. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. I'm with guest father Tony Percy talking about his book, Australia. What went right? What went wrong? Well, we're up to the stage where we're going to work out what went wrong. Now, Tony, one of the um, policies was the white Australia policy. John Curtin, the wartime prime minister, made the claim that he always said that Australia would be home to British descendants. Now, did he get it right? Did he get it wrong? It's quite incredible when you consider what's really going on in the world uh, and trying to understand your history as it pertains um, to what we're looking forward. So the part of this conversation is now moving forward to we look forward into the 21st century. We're going to discuss a number of different issues. One of the things we'll just we'll get tested with Tony in a minute. We'll check, check his audio out. But we're also going to talk about the era of Robert Menzies, which I think is really interesting. And I'll give you some stats that might actually really confuse you. If we have to with Tony, we might just get him on the phone. That might be another way we can back it up in, in a minute. But um, I bet you didn't know this, that housing ownership rose from 53 Three percent, which is, seems to be quite good in the 1940s, to 71% in the 50s, with the price of ownership of a home dropping from 300 weeks of the average income to uh, about 200 weeks. That uh, It's an extraordinary thing, whereas today we're talking about 17 years. We've got Tony back on the phone. Tony, we were talking before we got cut off there about John <laughs> Curtin, the wartime Prime Minister. Can you fill us in there in relation to the white Australia policy? Yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah, sorry about that. I think what happened was my assistant priest uh, started his car and the, my Bluetooth connected to his car, so that's what happened. That's the beauty of technology. <laughs> um, so he knocked on my door and said, I turn your Bluetooth off on your phone, so that's what I did. So apologies to you and your listeners and uh, viewers. So, yes, well, Curtin maintained that Australia would be, you know, sort of a white uh, bastion, but that was the case with the, the founding uh, politicians as well. The first thing they did was to... In the, in the legislative um, of, of, of Australia, was the legislative act was to um, ensure that Australia had a white Australia policy. Now we don't really know why that is the case, because in a free and fair society, you would think that uh, you know it's colourblind. So was it because of the, the supposedly negative experience they had with some of the other cultures in Australia? Um, we, we we just don't really know. But it, it seems clear from their speeches and writings that they actually thought that white people were superior and um, that's just one of the the truths of what they thought. Uh, Would all of them have thought that? No, but some of them did and so they passed that and maybe they thought it was for security for the country, maybe they thought the Chinese had presented some sort of threat. It's hard to know but that's what they did and it persisted for a while and then was slowly but surely dismantled in the uh, 60s and 70s. Mm. And that's something that you referred to as as something that 
went wrong, perhaps, with Australia. We move forward now. We move to the era of Robert Menzies, who um, was Australia's longest-serving Prime Minister. And and uh, just filling in there for a moment, I was just providing some statistics that the home ownership rose from the low 50% to the 70% range, that the cost of owning a home was went from 300 weeks of an average income to about 200 weeks of an average income, whereas you compare that to today and you're well up to uh, something like 17 years in Sydney, 12 and a half years in Melbourne. Um, can you talk a bit more about um, about that era of Menzies and his significance for Australia? It was boom time, wasn't it, after the war and um, you know, rapid development of Australia and it, because of the, the sheer, the smallness of the population and the quantity of land, it probably made it uh, easier to have uh, the land and property and it was a great time. So yes, it took you about three and a half, four years wages to pay for a house. So basically by the time you factor in all the other expenses, you're probably after 10 to 15 years, you've paid off your house. And that has become really difficult now. So all of the Australian cities in Australia now are in the worst 30 cities in the world when it comes to the median price and the average wage. So that's a real problem for Australia because one of the ways that you can create a free and fair society is by... Uh, creating the sense of home ownership, which then helps distribute the wealth that you create. So that this has become a real problem, and it's going to be a recipe for social disharmony, and probably is now unless we start to work on it really clearly. And I think that uh, the, the sides of politics, Labor and Liberal, they've got to think seriously about a housing summit that would bring together the best minds in the country, both on the supply side and the demand side. What are the, because you know price is an interplay of demand and supply, and to say within you know let's start now so that by in ten years time we've we've actually made some inroads into making this much more affordable for the generations to come because you know what you don't want to do is to have to rely on the the wealth of previous generations being handing it down through inheritance for people to actually be able to live properly. It's 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 no way to live life. You want people to be able to participate and and earn their own keep and be able to have their own properties. And I think that's very, very important. So it was a great achievement in Australia, but we're now struggling in this area. And that's where we, we can talk a little bit uh, later about what we should be doing in Australia to, to help uh, ensure a free and fair society. It is a major problem, as you say. Now, you, you put that together and then, of course, you talk about the family unit uh, that's also uh, being eroded, uh, whether it's through the school system, and we saw glimpses of that uh, during the pandemic with the idea that schools were announcing things like um, a 12-year-old is considered to be a mature minor and therefore can consent to a COVID vaccine, to uh, we fast forward and we see this trans agenda and uh, Daniel Andrews in Victoria uh, can, trying to convince people that um, if a child decides that at school that they want to change their gender or be confused about it. They don't even need to notify parents, etc. Or if anyone dare speak up against it, they will be punished. These seems to all be attacks against the family unit structure. Uh, this is obviously a another weakness. Was this something that was considered um, back in the days of the constitution creation? Well, I think in many ways it was assumed that people would, you know, would get married and, and have families and that's what they did. But of course the, the attack on marriage and family has been going on for some time now, uh, for long periods of time. Well, in this, I mean, in 1926, a famous Catholic journalist, a guy called G.K. Chesterton, said, "Look, there's more madness coming out of Manhattan than there is out of Moscow." And of course, we know the madness coming out of Moscow was the the um, communist revolution. But he was referring to the the sort of sexual liberties that were beginning to happen. That's way back in 1926. So a lot of these people with foresight can see the problem. And I think that once you, the problem is once you um, destabilise marriage and family, what, what happens is you destabilise the next generation. So there's quite a lot of people now, not necessarily Christian, I might add, that are, that are saying, look, the real people that suffer from the breakup and the dis, dismantling of the relationships in families are in fact the children. So I think this is a very important point that, you know, if we want... The next generations to come on we've got to invest in them heavily and the best way to do that is through stable marriages i mean in australia at the moment we've got the lowest marriage rate in our country's history 
So the rate was very low in the latter part of the 19th century for uh, reasons of depression and overspending and huge government debt and things, particularly on the railways. Uh, so we've had it before, but it's really quite a serious issue now. So that unless you have that stability uh, in families, it's hard for society to be stabilised. So just one fact, of course, as we all know, is there's, there is a lot of violence now in people's personal relationships. It's fuelled by a number of things, but that presents a major problem, particularly for the younger children and the teenagers. So that's a, an area that we've, we've really got to get... Uh, Right, and I think it's an area where the Christian faith in particular has a, a particularly good input because to, to go back to that guy Rodney Stark who I spoke about before, he, the book is called The Rise of Christianity and he says that one of the things that happened is that you know, when Christians began their way of life it was clear that the men had to be faithful to their wives and to be stable and this was a major sort of difference to what was happening in the Roman Empire at the time. And as a consequence of that, and because of the, the, the openness to life, Christians had more stable families and they had larger families and therefore they became uh, a, very much a larger section of the community. So, I mean, you know, in the ancient world, young women were married at the age of 12. Christians forbade that. They said, no, no, the woman has to be of reason. And when she does get married, it has to be one marriage to a stable fellow and the fellow's got to be accountable. He can't be reckless and be a philandra. And so Stark says that this was a major contributor to the stability of society. So as much as some people don't want to hear this, I think it's very important for people to recognise that, that you build a society from inside out through marriage and family. But I think it's a very important point. Yeah, absolutely, and it's something that just seems to be discarded again because of the lack of understanding of history. Now, we're in our home stretch about, uh, I think we're five or six minutes left in, in, in the show. Looking forward, Tony, to the future, do you hold out hope? And if so, how is it that we're going to uh, to build on from what's being produced so far here in this country? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of causes for pessimism, but uh, pessimism is different to despair uh, hope is the thing that really is important, and I think that one of the one of the contributing uh, one of, one of the great contributors to this would be uh, the social teaching that's been articulated in the Catholic Church since the Industrial Revolution, which has four foundation stones of a free and fair society. The first is the dignity and uh, freedom of the human person. Secondly, is the promotion of the common good. Thirdly, the principle of subsidiarity and fourthly, the principle of solidarity. So that if you want a free and fair society, we've simply got to keep at, at it defending the dignity of each human person. That's the basis on which you want a society to function. No matter who they are, male or female, no matter what station in life, no matter what background, uh, and we have a, have a responsibility to promote the dignity so that we know, e.g., no violence against them. We, will, we simply will not tolerate violence against people, no matter what the case is. And violence not only physical, but also you know, abusive stuff where you're getting people labelled and different things like that. So that, that should be very, very, very important, I think, for people. Second is the promotion of the common good, which is basically defined as all those conditions which help a human person flourish. So before I had an attack on self-interest, well, that's exactly what the common good is. And the common good is saying, can we put together a whole series of um, conditions that actually help people flourish? And one would think here particularly of education, access to education, access to health care, very, very important, access to employment. So, you know, the, the point would be to say, well, governments don't actually... Uh, you know, produce jobs. It's actually the free enterprise that produces jobs. So what are the conditions that allow free enterprise to create those jobs um, as they've done over the years? <clears throat> that's, that's very important. I think the common good is something that's really forgotten now. I think it's got to probably be recast with a slightly different language, but it's, it's, it's all those conditions that help people flourish. Then you have the principle of subsidiarity, which says that I shouldn't be letting the government do what I, as a rightful citizen, should do. And it, it gives rise to all those intermediary institutions. Think of sports clubs. Think of religious 
associations. You know, think of the scouts, think of a whole lot of things that function, the Lions Club, Rotary Clubs. And I think this is really important for young people. You know, bike, bike clubs, you know, just think of everything that you can that lies in between the government and the individual, intermediary institutions. And the principle says, get involved. Don't let the government take over. You must get involved to make this society a richer society. And then finally, the principle of solidarity. That is, we are going to care for people who are less fortunate than we are. So, you know, mentally ill people and the people with different disabilities. We've, and Australia's been very good at this, uh, to have the, that principle right in play. So each of those principles, those foundational principles, the paradigm of a free and fair society, each of them is important, I think. And it's not, as you, as you hear me articulating, they're not just for religious people, they're actually for everyone, no matter what faith. It's a sort of a social vision that we've had for for years and years and that's why to a large extent Australia has really functioned well because um, the, the faith, the Christian faith has been able to, along with others, to promote such a society. So I'm full of hope, um, I must say, it, provided we can communicate and, and bring out um, out of the next generation and the generations below a, a sort of a love for public and political life to get our kids involved in public and political life. And if we can do that, I'm, I'd be very, uh, very positive and very hopeful. It's, uh, it's certainly a, a wonderful projection forward to, to what's possible in our country, building on what it is that where we came from uh, as Australians, uh, first and foremost, over some couple of hundred years at least since modern Australia. You're looking back on a, a very strange scenario that we we went through the voice period last year. We, we failed at the Constitutional Convention to become a republic, and that was another situation that, again, we saw the d division once again. But at the very least, we still front up and have a go, that, uh, that Australian-ism uh, having a go uh, and getting out there. It's something that, uh, in many ways, you kind of look back and you wonder where old Australia ends and new Australia begins and how it is that we can perhaps circle mm. back to the things that made us great and, and do that without feeling like that we're relics all the time. It just seems that it's it's a very strange society that um, one day you're the in crowd, you're in your 20s and 30s, and the next minute you're in your 50s and you look back and go, now I'm the oldie that's been discarded uh, mm. in, in certain ways. It's, it's a strange, strange scenario that we're in that uh, things seem to be almost disposable uh, in in the way that we we live our lives, Tony, we've reached the um, the end of our our time together. I, I want to say thank you uh, for for coming on the show today. Uh, thank you for writing a terrific book and uh, doing the incredible work that you consistently do around the world. We didn't get a chance to talk about the uh, story about the the hospital that we did mention on previous shows here today. We'll talk about things like that another time. But um, thank you again. Start up again, yeah, yep. There you go. Well, well, thank you again, Tony, for, for being on the show. Everyone, that was Father Tony Percy, his book, Australia, What Went Right, What Went Wrong. I think you got it right this time. You can check it out, Connor Court Publishing, about $22 to pick up a copy. Get your history and understand it better than anyone else. Great place to start. Well, we're going to take a break for news. And when we return, we are going to have James Roguski on the other side. He is writing and researching and no one knows it better on the WHO than James. Let's take that break and be back with more here on TNT.